I believe it is approaching 30 years since I first stood here in this pulpit. Uh, Pastor Jim Savastio was then a student at Trinity Ministerial Academy, and he spent three months working with me in Maidenbauer when I was experiencing a period of ill health, and uh, that led to the invitation to return uh, to this country. I say return because I lived here for three years, 1968 to 1971, when I was a student in Philadelphia. And I'm very happy to be here. I count Pastor McDiarmid and Deborah, close and dear friends, Pastor Jim and Becky likewise. I have no closer friends on this side of the pond, but uh, very glad to be here and to have this opportunity then to minister God's word to you this morning. But I ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke's Gospel and chapter 16, and we read from verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Let us hear the inspired and infallible word of God. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted. And you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, for if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would drive home the truth, all the truths of these words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Press them upon our hearts, upon our minds, upon our consciences, we may search ourselves to see whether we are on the way to heaven or on the way to hell. Lord, look upon us and teach us by your word then this morning we pray and grant any who still sit in darkness prisoners of Satan and their sin that you would draw them unto Christ to repent and to believe 
and to be saved by him, we pray in his name. Amen. There is hardly another passage like this anywhere in the four Gospels. For it records for us, in large measure, the feelings and the experience of an unconverted man after death. It is as if the Lord Jesus Christ is drawing aside the veil and we get a glimpse into life after death. Now our Lord Jesus Christ on this occasion is speaking to those who are deriding him and holding him in contempt. They are turning up their nose at what he has to say. This account here, this story here, may be a parable. Whether it is or not is neither here nor there. And our Lord Jesus Christ is addressing these Pharisees who hold him in contempt. And he's speaking solemnly. He's not speaking to satisfy a mere curiosity about what happens after death. There is in our day and age a fascination with the paranormal and people try to contact the dead. They engage in seances and similar sorts of things. Our Lord Jesus Christ is in another realm altogether. He speaks to us and he speaks not only pressing home to us the importance of what will happen after death, but pressing home to us also how important the decisions we make regarding him in this life are and the effect that they have then on our future destiny. What you do now with the Lord Jesus Christ will determine whether you spend eternity in heaven or in hell. Now there are lots of things we do not know about life after death. But we do get a glimpse of the things that we need to know from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you will learn far more from the lips of Jesus Christ about this life and the life that is to come than you will from any medium, from any spiritist. There was a man in our congregation for a while who was fascinated with the paranormal with ghosts and all that kind of paraphernalia and he was a very needy man and he was an evil man and I pressed home to him again and again this passage of scripture and said to him Bill you will learn far more that is of importance to you from the lips of Jesus Christ that you will from any ghost or from anything to do with the paranormal. And why is that? Because it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is speaking. And he speaks with authority. He knows. He can bear witness with credibility. He is the Son of God. He is the one who has the keys of Hades and of death. This one who speaks here in these verses, spoke these words when he was here upon the earth. But he is now the risen Lord, exalted at the right hand of the Father. And all authority has been given to him. And he speaks with that authority again here this morning. These words are no less true because of the passing of the years. Because they come from the lips of the living Savior of sinners. The one who is the judge of the living and the dead. And therefore it is right that we heed what is said here by our Lord Jesus Christ. There are four things that I want to press home to you this morning from this account. And the first is this, very simply and very obviously. And yet we necessarily emphasize it. The Lord Jesus Christ confirms there is life beyond death. I emphasize that simply because there are many people who say in our day and age you may have heard them say these things to you when you die you're done for 
That's it. That's the end of your existence. That's the end of life. They don't want to talk about it. They know that they must die. But because there's nothing you can do about it, they would rather keep it as far away from them as they possibly can. Most people in our day and age in the UK, and I guess it's the same here in America, most happy people decide they will carry on as if they are going to live forever. Or if they don't believe that lie that when you're dead you're done for, they invent other lies. Everyone will go to heaven. That is very common. You go to a funeral and whatever the kind of life that person has led, oh, they're on their way to heaven. I think the rich man in this story was rather like that. I don't think it entered his head for one moment that he would not enter heaven. He certainly did not expect to find himself in hell. The beggar, after he died, he is found in, with Abraham, in Abraham's bosom, which is a Jewish picture of way of saying he is in heaven. He is with Abraham. He is with the fathers. Abraham is the father of the faithful. So the Lord Jesus Christ certainly confirms in this story there is life after death. And that is a contradiction to all the lies that men and women invent about what happens when you die. But here is a glimpse. Here is a conversation between the rich man and Abraham. And Abraham is really speaking, as it were, for Christ. It takes place after death. That's why I say there is no comparable passage anywhere in the rest of the Gospels. It's what we call the intermediate state. That is the state after death, before the return of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of the living and the dead. And the Lord Jesus Christ here is a credible witness. What he says, he speaks on authority from his Father in heaven. He does not speak on his own authority. He came here to bring the words of his Father. So we have a double authority here. We have God the Father and we have God the Son addressing us here this morning. And I would remind you that the one who speaks these words is none other than the judge of the living and the dead. The one who was dead and is now alive forevermore, who has the keys of Hades and of death. Therefore we do well to pay heed to what he says. Listen to Christ, he who has ears to hear. Let him hear. The second thing. Jesus having confirmed that there is life beyond death. Secondly, he testifies to a complete reversal of the state and condition of men after death. Of the rich man and of Lazarus. This is the heart of this story. The contrast that Jesus draws here would have shaken to the core the Pharisees who heard it. Because it shook their expectations and their hopes. And maybe it should shake you in a similar way this morning, especially if you are not found in Christ, trusting in him. Jesus never spoke words just for no particular purpose. He spoke words in order to penetrate the hearts and minds and consciences of those whom, to whom he was speaking. He is the one who comes to bring the words of eternal life. But sometimes before he spoke the words of eternal life, he needed to shake people out of their complacency and their indifference 
and their false assumptions. Notice here in verse 19, the state of the rich man and then Lazarus before they died. Verse 19 introduces us to a certain rich man. His style of life is described as sumptuous. He is clothed in purple and fine linen and he fared sumptuously every single day. We would say he lived a life of luxury. A five-star hotel existence every single day. His life was marked by fullness, by abundance, in wealth, food, clothes. Every meal was like a banquet. Notice the contrast in verse 20. Here is a beggar. A certain beggar named Lazarus. Look at his state. He lived on the streets. He was full of sores. He has been laid at the gate, suggesting that he was not able to do that himself. He was physically unable to do that. But he desired to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And who were his best friends? Dogs. And they were not your pet dogs. They were probably semi-wild dogs that roamed the streets. If you've ever been to the Mediterranean world, that is part and parcel of life. Semi-wild dogs, thin, haggard, hungry. They also wanted to eat some of the scraps that might come from the rich man's table. But these dogs, wild, half-wild as they were, at least had some measure of sympathy for this poor man. They came and licked his source. Now because this rich man was so rich, he had plenty of friends, he was highly regarded by men, but notice he had no time for the beggar at his gate. The dogs showed him more kindness than this rich man did. And now see the startling contrast once both of these men had passed from this life. Once they died. There is a complete change. There is a total reversal of their lot and their fortune in verse 22. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. What does it say of the rich man in the next verse? He died and he was buried. And I guess his burial would have been a lavish affair. He was rich. He had five brothers, we're told later on. So it was a big family affair, a lavish affair, there in his home. But you see, there's even a reversal in the order. Who does Jesus speak of first? In verse 19, it's the rich man. In verse 22, it's the beggar. The beggar now becomes the focus of attention. He's being carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. They say that is a Jewish picture. That's a language, Jewish picture language for heaven. Intimate, close fellowship with Abraham. You remember that earlier on in his ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ spoke of the kingdom of God and sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And that was a place of feasting. It was a place of joy. It was a place of happiness. You can find the reference in Matthew 8 and verse 11 and Luke 13 and verse 29. And Jesus said of this beggar, with respect to his spirit, he'd been carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Angels are ministers of the heirs of salvation. It tells us something about this poor man, this beggar. He was a true son of Abraham. 
He was a righteous man even though he was poor and suffering and sat at the gate of this beggar full of sores. But now he is beyond death. Now he has been brought safely home. The place where he really belongs. He is in God's care. He's not left to wander in some strange spirit world. He's been brought home to heaven. But look at the rich man. What a terrible shock. Being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. He's not quite rendered speechless. But he is in great distress. The life of sumptuous ease. The life of happiness and joy that he had experienced on this earth. Is now a thing of the past. And never to be restored to him. He is... In verse 23, in torments in Hades. He's in torment. His spirit is not in heaven at all. A total and complete change. The poor man enjoys bliss and comfort. The rich man, unrelieved torment and anguish. Here is the answer, you see, to the lie that says everybody goes to heaven. Christ says, not so. He testifies to the reality of heaven and the reality of hell and to the complete reversal of what many think will be their lot. Is there someone sitting here listening to the words of Christ this morning and Christ's words challenge your presumption? Do you presume That you will go to heaven. On what basis do you presume that you will go to heaven? Have you thought it through carefully? I would suggest that this rich man never gave a second thought to whether he would end in heaven or hell. As far as he was concerned, he was happy here upon this earth. He had his fill of good things. He was a Jew. He would be with Abraham. He would be in heaven. And he never gave it a second thought. Until this moment here when he finds himself in torment in hell. And then it is too late. Someone said that hell is the truth seen too late. And that is the sad lot of this rich man. Now some people will have great trouble with those phrases there in verse 23. This unrelieved anguish and torment. It's the kind of thing that our Lord spoke about on more than one occasion, many occasions. In fact, our Lord spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. And I believe there's a simple reason for that. He took no delight in the death of the wicked. He warned, he warned, and warned again. But here is this man in anguish, he's in distress, he is deprived of blessing, he sees Abraham in the far distance, and there is Lazarus enjoying heaven with Abraham. And this man is in torment and it is depicted for us as a man who is raked with thirst. And he pleads with Abraham, let Lazarus just come over. Let him dip his finger just in a cup of water and let him come and put it on my tongue and relieve this intense torment. It's a plea. But Abraham will not heed his plea. And he has reasons for not heeding his plea. 
Now our Lord chose other pictures to describe the horrors of hell. Here it is torment and a raking thirst. Elsewhere, for example, in Luke chapter 13 and verse 28, he speaks of weeping, of wailing, and the gnashing of teeth. What is he referring to there? One certain thing he's referring to is certainly that your former sins will lash your conscience in hell. The regrets, the sorrows, the distresses, and particularly the not turning to Jesus Christ to receive the forgiveness of sins, shunning him, that sin of unbelief, that refusal to come to Christ will lash your conscience in a way that is beyond description. And the picture drawn by Christ is deliberate. It's to teach us. It is to warn us ahead of time. Which one of you would choose the lot of this rich man? A lot of eternal woe, distress, anguish, torment. And yet thousands do when they reject God's book and they reject God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our Lord is not speaking of these things in order to satisfy idle curiosity. He's speaking and addressing you and speaking of your eternal destiny. I want to say at this point, just an aside almost, but an important aside. Be careful that in reading this story you do not raise objections and ask questions that are not answered and you be distracted. Questions like this. Well, if spirits have no bodies after death, before the resurrection, how could a rich man see? How could he speak? How could he feel thirst? Did Lazarus have a finger that he could literally dip in a cup of cold water? There are lots of questions. It's not easy to provide answers. But our Lord Jesus Christ if he thought we needed answers to those questions, would have provided them. But he does not. And because of that, we say there is no reason to dismiss the teaching of Christ that is plain and clear in the Scriptures. There is no reason for us to say, well, because we don't have answers to those questions, we can't and won't believe what is being written here. We are the ones who are in ignorance. Not Christ. And I'm happy to let that matter rest there. How can we, finite creatures, living in this world, how can we possibly know ways in which thirst, pain, and other torment affect a disembodied spirit? It's a mystery. I don't know. And Jesus doesn't answer that question. Don't then get fixed and distracted on issues like this and miss the whole point of what Jesus is actually saying. The important thing to note here is that this rich man, all his expectations were dashed and reversed and in ruins. Because the rich man never took time to take the questions of life and death seriously. I don't believe he gave one thought to the prospect of hell while he was alive on the earth. Now that is the heart of what Jesus is saying, but it is not the end of what he has to say. Because there is a third thing that is equally important. Because he asserts, our Lord Jesus Christ thirdly asserts, that the destiny 
of the rich man and of Lazarus is now fixed. It is permanent. Verse 26, when Abraham says in verse 25, in reply to the rich man's request and plea that Lazarus come and relieve his thirst, we read, Abraham, verse 25, said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And then verse 26, And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there Pass to us. Last week, my wife and I stood on the northern rim of the Grand Canyon. There was no way we were going to make a jump to the south rim. But the gulf is far greater than the distance between the north and the south rim of the Grand Canyon. There are those who foolishly tried to cross it. Uh, but I won't go into all of that. You, you know more about it probably than I do. But the whole point of what Jesus is saying here, he says, there is a gulf and your destiny is fixed. There is no second opportunity. There is no second chance. In the eternal world, a great gulf has been fixed. Who's fixed it? God has. Jesus Christ has. People will say, and they will hang on, and here's another lie that people believe. Well, there will be a second chance to repent after death. There was a man that I spoke to year after year after year. And I don't believe he ever came to faith in Christ. But he hung on to this. There's another opportunity after death. And I would say to him, no, where can you find that? Upon the lips of Jesus. And I read this passage and other passages to him, but was unable to persuade him. Others latch on to another lie. They say there's a place called purgatory, where you go to be purged of your sins, so that eventually you can enter into heaven on the basis of the merits of Mary and of the saints. They have some surplus merits and grace, and they can give them to you. That's another lie. Don't believe those things. They're contrary to the words of Christ. A great gulf has been fixed. It is permanent. It is eternal. There is no way back. You won't hear that from any medium. They're false prophets who spout lies. Christ says... Through the lips of Abraham, no one can move from one place to another. It's permanent. Surely then you can understand why this rich man is desperate to escape. But there is no way of escape. And there will be no way of escape for you. If not believing in Christ, you end up in hell. There will be no hope. You will experience the unrelieved anguish of hell. Christ says that. It's fixed. I think the rich man missed heaven, in a sense, unintentionally. Because no one in their right mind would choose hell. But he chose and missed heaven unintentionally because he never, ever gave it a second thought. Am I describing someone sitting here this morning? Even as you hear these things, you may be younger, you may be older, you may be middle-aged, and you do not really want to hear what Christ is saying to you this morning. You're trying to push it away you don't really want to give it a second thought my friend let me plead with you give it a second a third and a fourth thought 
Consider what Jesus Christ is saying very carefully. Lest, like this rich man, you end up in Hades, in indescribable torment. Nothing of the blessing of God. Even if you are not believing in Christ at this moment, you enjoy so many blessings from God. The very fact that you are here this morning alive, that you ate a meal before you came and you will sit down and eat another meal later on today, the fact that you wake up each morning, the fact that you have clothes on your body, the fact that you have family and friends and a multitude of other things, these are all tokens of God's blessing, but they will be removed. There will be nothing of the blessing of God in hell. That's why it's a place of torment. But then finally this morning there is a last thing that Jesus Christ drives home. We've seen, first of all, that there is life after death. We've noted the complete reversal that takes place at death. And we've noted that he asserts that the destiny is fixed. The last thing And here again you see the tenderness of Christ. He is exposing false hopes. He is still concerned that his hearers will repent and believe. He exposes false hopes in verses 27 to 31. It is evident that when Abraham tells this rich man there's a great gulf fixed, he accepts that, he realizes that, he can't alter that. And so he enters into another discussion and another plea, a desperate plea with Abraham. Send Lazarus back then to my five brothers, to my father's house. I do not want them to join me in this place of torment. Note carefully now the rich man's way of thinking. And what is Abraham's response? Verse 29. Lazarus is not going back. Your brothers, your father, your friends, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. That is sufficient. That is enough for them in order to know the way of salvation. There's enough there about Christ and the Messiah. There's enough there to tell them the way of eternal life. The rich man is not satisfied with that answer. He says, no, Father Abraham, verse 30, if one goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. That will prove to them a witness from someone who's been beyond the grave. Let him come back and let him tell them what it is like. Let Lazarus tell them what it is like in hell as well as what it is like in heaven. If they see something like that, a sign, a miracle like that, then they will repent of their sins he's sure about this if one goes to them from the dead they will repent what is the Lord Jesus Christ doing here he's exposing false hopes if men and women will not believe the testimony of the written word of God the living and abiding word of God, God's gospel, if people will not listen to that, then even if someone rises from the dead, they will not believe. You remember there's another Lazarus in the Bible. He is the brother of Mary and of Martha. And Jesus raised him from the dead. He had been dead four days in the tomb. He'd been laid there. And Jesus had deliberately kept back his arrival. He raised him from the dead. Everybody in Bethany knew Lazarus had been raised from the dead. 
And what was the response of those who were in Bethany? What was the response of some of the religious leaders? First of all, they tried to kill Jesus. And not content with that, they then tried to kill Lazarus. I've told this story very often of my wife's mother. She was a skeptic. And she had good reasons, in one sense, good reasons why she had rejected the Christian faith early on in her life. I will not go back into the details of that. But it fell to me to try and bear witness to her. And she said to me on one occasion, Austin, if you could put the Lord Jesus Christ here in this room, and he spoke, then I would believe. And I said, no, you wouldn't. She was shocked. And I told her, I said, do you know what happened when Lazarus was raised from the dead? And I told her that story. And she said, no, no, in a broad Welsh accent. No, no, surely they believed. I said, no, they tried to kill Jesus. They tried to kill Lazarus. The pleas of the rich man then are refused and on good grounds. What this teaches us as it deals with our false expectations and hopes, it tells us that if you neglect the words of Christ, if you neglect the preaching of the gospel, of Christ, if you reject the Bible and all that it says about Jesus Christ and about life and about death and about heaven and about hell, that is enough to land you in hell itself because that's precisely what this rich man did. If you belittle your sin, your guilt before a holy God, your need to repent. No amount of resurrections will ever convince you. If you are convicted of your sin and of your need of God to forgive you your sin and you go then to the Lord Jesus Christ and cast yourself as a lost and guilty sinner upon Christ... That is the way to heaven. And it is the only way to heaven. And the testimony is here in the word of God. Because in the word of God you find commands. All men everywhere are commanded to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ. And not only are you commanded, you are invited to come by Jesus Christ. Wide open arms, he invites sinners, lost, guilty bowed down by the weight of their sin and by their guilt, he invites them to come. And he promises, he promises eternal life to whoever believes on him. Whatever your sin is this morning, whatever your guilt, however long you've been walking the paths of darkness, however long you've been wandering far from the fold of God, the promise is, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And if you are saved, there is no way you can be cast into hell. It is Christ who saves and Christ alone. You see how far this rich man was from the kingdom of God. He was far away from the kingdom of God when he was here upon this earth. Not simply because he was rich. That wasn't the reason he was not in heaven. He was far away from the kingdom of God because he rejected the testimony of Moses and the prophets. And here, even in hell, his thinking is askew, is twisted. He shows all the misunderstandings that many people show while they are alive on this earth. And there may be someone sitting here this morning who is saying, I will not believe until I have answers to my questions. Why do I have to suffer so much? Why is there so much suffering in the world? 
And people use that and say, I can't believe in a God of love because of the amount of suffering in this world. That's another way in which you get distracted. Yes, there is suffering in this world and some of it is extreme and distressing. But we live in a world which is as it is because of sin. Sin has entered into this world. Death has entered into this world. And there's a great deal of wickedness and evil and violence in this world. But it is not God's fault. It is man's fault. Man in his wickedness. The one who says in his heart, the fool who says, as we heard this morning, there is no God. Or you may say, well, I'm not going to believe until I have a sign from heaven. Here it was, well, I'll have one raised from the dead. Then they'll believe. You are in no position to lay down demands of, to God the terms on which you will believe upon his son, Jesus Christ. It's a wicked thing to do. When God in his kindness has spoken, when God in his kindness has sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world, when Jesus Christ came into this world, he went about doing good. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. He healed, he taught, he raised people from the dead. And yet they killed him. They nailed him to a cross. But in the plan and purpose of God, that nailing to the cross was an atonement for sin. To deal with the sin and with the guilt and with the curse of the law. And then he raised him from the dead. In order that our sins might be forgiven. That we might be cleansed. In order that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ might be saved. No one suffered like the Son of God. If you raise your objection, say, well, there's so much suffering in the world. I always say, let me take you to someone who suffered indescribable woe and curse forsaken by his father. And let me tell you why he suffered. It was a supreme expression of the love of God. He did not withhold his own son. He gave him up freely for us. I don't want you to go out of this room unbelieving. I don't want you to go home and forget what you have heard this morning. My prayer is that the Spirit of God will drive these things home to every young heart, to every older heart here this morning I want to see you crying out to God I want to know that you have been saved from your sins and you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone my friend you have all the information you need you have all the information here in the Bible you hear it week after week if you come and attend this congregation and the preaching of the word of God here you have Moses you have the prophets, you have the gospels, you have the epistles, you have the entirety of the word of God. It is enough. It is enough. And if you are a Christian here this morning, let my last word be to you. Your prospect, Abraham's bosom, heaven. Now this poor man was not in heaven because he was poor. That would be a misinterpretation of the text. He was a true son of Abraham. We're not given the details, but his faith was clearly he was trusting in God. And we are told that when he found his way to heaven, when he died he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom 
And there he was comforted in comparison to the rich man who was tormented. And heaven, my friends, is your home. And all your sorrows, all your tears, all your sufferings in this life will one day be no more. God, in his wonderful care and love and provision and grace, having embraced you and brought you to heaven, will comfort you with a comfort that is indescribable. A peace, a joy, the knowledge of Christ, seeing him, being with him, eventually being like him, and the enjoyment of God, the enjoyment of Christ, and the enjoyment of the resurrected saints of God forever. God willing, this evening we will dwell more fully upon that subject. But I would not want to end this sermon without that word of comfort to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Lord, let your word do its saving work in the hearts and lives of all that are here this morning. Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We are needy. We are ignorant. We need to be taught these things in order that we might escape the wrath that is to come. In order that we might heed the word of Christ and heed the commands, the promises, and the invitations of the gospel. Lord, deliver us then from ourselves and from our unbelief and from our sin that all our trust and confidence and comfort may be in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone.